I don't know about you, I've been tearing up at the weirdest things these days. I'm not usually particularly susceptible to holiday sentimentality. I ascribe that to too many years overseeing hectic Christmas Eves here at the cathedral. My friend and uh, fellow Anglican Dean Peter Elliott notes, in, notes with irony that in his experience, clergy are secretly some of the most cynical people when it comes to this holiday. He says, it's not that the work required to provide services for crowds of people makes us cynical, nor is it the essence of the message we're called to proclaim. Rather, what makes us dread Christmas is the widely held expectation that every Christmas will be particularly special, and that if you're not filled with exuberant joy, like the transformed Ebenezer Scrooge, you're not really experiencing Christmas. I think Peter's onto something. When you spend your days and nights back behind the curtain, working the liturgical knobs and the whirly gigs, it becomes harder and harder to appreciate the power and the wonder of this, this great celebration. So maybe, like me, like many of us, you're working a little bit harder. Maybe you're struggling to find the magic this year. I honestly wasn't even sure I had a Christmas Eve sermon in me this time around. It's been a year. You don't need me to tell you all the reasons why. This cathedral is nearly empty this year, a cathedral that is usually packed to the gills right now with people who have either just come from dinner or are beginning ready to go to dinner, jolly and a little bit mellow and ready to experience the wonder and the magic of the child born in Bethlehem, the angel's song, the augmented seventh in Adeste Fidelis, the candle at silent night. This year is different for just about every one of us. There's an empty place. Maybe there's several empty places at your dinner table. Some of you are just realizing there has never been a Christmas Eve in your life that you were not in church, and this is the first time. Others of you have never been in church on a Christmas Eve in your life, and you're going to pass because you're still not. But next year, we want you here. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange year. It's entirely possible that many of you are at home watching this service on a, a laptop, an iPad, and you are entirely alone maybe for the first time in your life on this holiest of nights. This is not an easy year to be alone. It feels like it's always winter and never Christmas. That's the phrase that is used to describe the kingdom of Narnia when the, poor, the four Pevensey children first magic their way into the wardrobe in C.S. Lewis's 1950s novel. Always winter and never Christmas because the white witch has decreed it so, forbidding celebration or joy of any kind under her reign of terror. Winter is not typically a season of celebration. Winter is something we think of as something to be endured, especially in the northern climes. Ancient tribes counted people's lifetimes not by the number of birthdays they'd experienced, the writer Elizabeth Diaz said, not by the number of birthdays they've experienced, but by how many winters they had survived. That's how you knew how old you were. Winter was known as the, the hungry time, she says, the dangerous time, and the undeniable hardship of this winter of 2020 is a reminder that for much of human history, particularly in colder climates, winter was a season simply to be survived. Winter means the primal time of death and loss. It's often a time of deep grief. It reminds us that darkness and not only light is a part of the reoccurring rhythm of what it means to be human. And ironically, maybe even a little bit salvifically, that darkness lies at the heart of the story that Christians tell every December 24th. Maybe this year, as many of us struggle to 
reclaim the magic of childhood Christmases gone by, we might look a little bit deeper into the center of this ancient story and see things a little bit differently. Maybe we see anew the, the fear in the holy parents' eyes, these homeless refugees far from their home. And maybe we hear differently these chilling words with which the gospel descri writer describes their arrival in the city of Bethlehem, a long and, and dangerous journey from their hometown in Nazareth. While they were there in Bethlehem, Luke says, it came time for Mary to deliver her child. That's a terrifying statement. No midwife, no doctor, not even a, a helpful female relative to hold her hand and coach her through her contractions. She and Joseph are doing this thing entirely on their own. Luke says, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in bands of cloth. She laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That's scary. That's dark. I mean, there are angels in this story too. They come a little bit later as, as messengers on the Bethlehem hillside. But Hebrew scripture, when it describes angelic beings, does not tend to describe sweet cherubs or blonde children with harps. In the Bible, angels have multiple faces. They have a man face, a lion face, an ox face, and an eagle face. They have multiple eyes, and they fly around on some sort of like insect-like whirling mechanism. I imagine them as kind of like weird cockroach creatures, gigantic and beautiful and terrifying. It must have been glorious, but it's no surprise when the angel of the Lord stands before the shepherds, as Luke tells them, when the, when the glory of the Lord shines about them, the shepherds are scared, right? This first Christmas is as much a supernatural monster flick as it is a, a snow-dappled Christmas card. Everybody is frightened out of their skin with wonder and terror and dread right? Beauty, the real thing, real unmitigated beauty that causes you to gasp and lose your breath. True beauty can be a horrifying thing. The German poet Rainer Maria Rilke knew that when he wrote 100 years ago, beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we are still just able to endure. And we are so awed because it serenely disdains to annihilate us. Rilke says, every angel is terrifying. And every angel is terrifying in this story, from Gabriel, who tells Mary she's pregnant, to the glory of the Lord shining around the shepherds. Fear is all around these people. Political power moves are afoot. Then, as now, the, the question of who controls the census count is a question of who can knock the most heads. And the Judeans of Nazareth were quite used to having their heads knocked around by the emperor and his minions. These are desperate people who are living on the knife edge of terror, that thin line between survival and annihilation. This is a land in which it is always winter and never Christmas. And maybe we're a little bit closer to that original Christmas reality than many of us have known before. But these angels, as, as beautiful and terrifying as they are, are not simply here to sing a hymn and get out of town. Angels in the Bible are messengers. They come bearing signs. That's what they say. This will be a sign. All the word angel means in Hebrew, malachim, is, is messenger, right? They're, they're harbingers. They come as like the, the advanced report of something wonderful and terrifying that is about to take place. Messengers do that. We often mistake messengers as a threat, right? There's a reason we say don't shoot the messenger, right? That's true in the Narnia books when the, when the children think that they hear the, the awful sound of the white witch's sleigh bells outside, they're ready to run, right? They are sore afraid. 
And it turns out, like those shepherds on the hillside, that there is a very different visitor with a very different message who has come to call. In the, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first sign of winter's thaw, the, the loosening of the grip of the White Witch's reign of terror in Narnia, is when those children emerge from the dampness of the beaver's cave and they see a figure they know instantly by sight. He's kind of a different angelic messenger. I've come at last, says he of the bright red coat, bright as holly berries, with a, a great white beard that falls like a foamy waterfall over his chest. He says, she has kept me out a long time. I have got in at last. And then he gives them the sign. Aslan is on the move, he says. The witch's magic is weakening. That's Father Christmas's angelic annunciation to the Pevensey children. There's been a change in the wind, a shift in the season. He arrives as the first sign of the inbreaking of this new reign, this new kingdom. And along with this message that he gives the children, he gives them gifts. He gives them the Christmas gifts that they will need to survive the winter and defeat the witch's reign. And he warns them, he says, these gifts are tools, not toys. These are tools, not toys. The time to use them is perhaps very near at hand. So bear them well, he says. Bear them well. Angelic messengers with heavenly gifts. We've come to expect that from this season and this story. But maybe Father Christmas is more in this Hebrew tradition of the terrifying angels when he warns the children that his gifts are tools and not toys. Maybe this is finally the year for we weary ones who have been trapped by the longest winter we've ever known to look into the, the message and the tools that Father Christmas has to give us in the midst of this most terrifying of winters, the tools we need to beat back the darkness, not toys to distract us from our pain. Rather than ask, how do we recapture the magic of a fantasy Christmas long past, maybe we should ask what this Christmas, with its strangely beautiful, terrifying, weird, angelic annunciations, maybe we should ask, what are the, what are the gifts, what are the, what are the tools that Father Christmas would give to us this year? What do you need to get you through the winter? What do you need to strike a blow against the White Witch's power? Or maybe more to the point, what have you already been given? What were you given maybe years ago, many Christmases ago, a gift that you were given not for your private use and enjoyment, but for the building up of something, for the encouragement and the healing and the, the salvation of other people in your life, maybe other people that you have never met. Those are God's best and truest gifts, not the ones that we hoard and hold on to. God's gifts are the ones that we learn to use in times of great need. The greatest gifts that we are given are when we participate in somebody else's healing. So maybe like me, you've been tearing up at some weird things this year. That's a sign, right? Last night we watched a, an old Christmas favorite in the LaRue family. It's a film that I think I could probably quote for you in its entirety in memory. At the end of A Muppet Family Christmas, 
Kermit and his friends are sitting around Fozzie Bear's mom's farmhouse, and they begin their annual carol sing. Apparently, this is a Muppet tradition, something that's impossible to imagine happening in 2020, but it happened in 1987 on CBS. Statler and Waldorf got a verse of, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Gonzo sings Good King Wenceslas. Miss Piggy gives Judy Garland kind of a run for her money with the strangest version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. It's very sweet, and of course, it's Miss Piggy, Miss Piggy so it doesn't sound amazing. But at the end of all of the wonderful wackiness, the strange and the sweet, the Muppet's resident voice of sincerity, Kermit's nephew Robin, softly begins what I don't think of actually as a, a classic Christmas carol. It's a John Denver song from a, a decade or so earlier, the different Muppet John Denver Christmas celebration. But it's a song that would be sung just a few months later at Jim Henson's funeral, just a few months after that special aired. Robin sings, it's in every one of us to be wise. Find your heart. Open up both your eyes. We, we can all know everything without ever knowing why. It's in every one of us, by and by, by and by. And just like that, Robin's earnestness, John Denver's lyric, and as another venerable hymn puts it, the dark night wakes, the glory breaks, and for me, anyway, Christmas came once more. You can take just about everything away from me. The holly and the ivy, the carol sings, the cookie baking, the cathedral packed full of people. Those are just the trappings, right? As I thought about it later, I began to wonder if the reason that I have grown so cynical around Christmas time is actually because I love it more than just about any other time of year. I always have and the stress and the, the trauma of busy, hectic Christmases, all of that's really just a, a kind of protection, isn't it? A saran wrap that I've learned to wrap around a holiday that means more to me than just about any other, a way to protect something vulnerable and fragile at the center of my weary soul. Cynicism is a tool of control, isn't it? Cynicism is not a tool for liberation. And this year of all years, it's easy, it's natural, maybe it's even appropriate to be cynical, maybe even despairing around the holidays. And it takes courage to step out into a starry night, to, into the darkness of that uncertainty, that anticipation, that fear, and find something, feel into something that starts ever so gently to shift and begins to feel like hope. It takes courage to open your heart to that thing. We have been let down before. Typically in church, we talk about offering the baby Jesus our hearts as the, the gift that the baby Jesus would most want. I used to wonder, I still wonder, like what does that mean? What does it mean to give baby Jesus my heart? This year, I wanna to suggest to you, maybe actually it's the other way around. Maybe it's the Christ child who wants to offer us back our hearts, however, scarred and steeled against the world they may feel this year. That's the greatest gift that we can receive. That's the, the sign, right? The harbinger of a different kind of hope, the tool that is not a toy, something that is resilient and strong and full of courage and maybe even joy, reclaiming our hearts after the long winter. Maybe that's the gift that we need most to get us through these next couple months, the gift that can get us back to this place of, of stillness and darkness, this place of 
beautiful Christmas silence where the dark night can break and glory can wake and Christmas can come once more. Robin was right. It's in every one of us to be wise. Find your heart. Open up both your eyes. We can all know everything without ever knowing why. It's in every one of us, by and by, by and by. Merry Christmas, friends. <laughs>